0: No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end.
1: Hello and welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Bellavo, and with me is my usual partner in these adventures, Adam Kroom. Adam, how are you doing?
2: I am with you, but I'm socially distant from you.
1: That's yeah. it's and and I miss you too. It's usually nice to look ten feet away and, and shake my head at you. So I'll have just pretend yeah, I'm virtually. we should we
2: should mention that we're 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 pretty good at socially distancing from each other. <laughs> this is this is just sort yeah. of unnecessary.
1: Comes from a long history of uh, just just trying to keep each other separate so nothing bad happens. So uh, we have some special guests with us today. And the whole idea, since we're all living in this bizarre world, uh, you know, the joke of the show was when we started at calling it media and the end of the world because there were so many, you know, inconvenient things pointing that we were maybe moving toward the end times in kind of a sarcastic way. And here we are. That's gotten kind of escalated to the point that's, I think, leaving a lot of us with our heads spinning. In case you don't happen to be listening to this in the terribly near future, we're uh, in the middle of something between a, a quarantine and getting back to normal at Easter or not, depending on what direction things are going. You know, corona is everywhere. And um, so that means that a lot of people are have their kids not in school. So there's a lot of homeschooling going on. And this is also presenting a lot of interesting issues in the media world. And... Uh, I like to think that the show is a lot about media literacy, and so today we have three media literacy experts who are going to talk to us about what's happening uh, in their world with media literacy generally, and the situation we're in in particular. Starting off is Natasha Casey, who's actually been on the podcast before. Hi, Natasha.
3: Hi, Ralph. Hi,
1: Adam. Good to be back. It's good to have you back again, and um, we're all in various states of remote control with our teaching lives and scrambling to put things online, and I think uh, Natasha's in the final stages of preparing for starting to teach next week, is that right?
3: I am. The madness is almost over or about to begin, I'm not sure which. Uh,
1: Also with us is Spencer Brayton, who is uh, involved sort of from the um, information literacy side because he's sort of in the library business. And uh, I hear you've been a pretty busy person of late.
0: I have been, but it's good to have a little break here and talk to you and Adam.
1: Oh, that's Looking good. forward to it. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. What, so, what, if, what 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 sorts of things have they been have you been responsible for?
0: Uh, um, I, I was happy to hear Belina before we started talk about the digital divide. Um, oh. I'm dealing with a lot of issues around um, loaning technology to students, and who's going to do that now that we're off campus and campus is closed, and kind of what that looks like.
1: Okay. So my other guest is Wilina D'Abru, who is uh, also heavily involved in media literacy and um, has been involved in it for a very long time and does some excellent writing about it and is joining us also to talk about some of the issues that she's been dealing with in this new bizarre world that we're in. So welcome. Happy to have you here.
4: Thank you for having me, Adam and Uh, Val. This is a great opportunity. It's certainly a perfect opportunity to be talking about what has changed our lives?
1: <laughs> That's a, that is a great question to start. So what's changed our lives? <laughs> what's Seriously, from the from kind of the media literacy and education perspective, uh, and Bolina, if you want to start, what's, what's the main thing that you think that people should have front of mind when they're thinking about the media world they're in now?
4: I think we have to talk about balance 100%. I think right now, it's funny. I always thought that I was filled media driven by everything every you know it's such a part of my life watching the news listening to the to what's happening in the world and now I t- am trying to find time to step away from it all Um yesterday as a matter of fact I remember I, I walked away from my computer after being on from 7 a.m till 2 in the afternoon I wanted to throw it out the window and be like I, I'm not doing this yeah. um, and I'm on a lot and more than I think ever before. And that has definitely made me think about balance and how much we actually need to emphasize that. I certainly am emphasizing it even with my media literacy students at the college level, where I'm usually telling them, you have to watch the media. And now I'm like, listen, media diet is incredibly important right now and in, in finding balance and maybe not watching so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, when, when Natasha and I were teaching, she had developed this 24 hours without. Uh, media assignment, and I kind of feel like I need that myself lately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, what what is it you're trying to get away from there mostly?
0: Um, just I think you know I'm 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 following things on so many different uh, platforms, um, and then not taking a break actually from work because I think students are always are always needing something. So um, there is no balance, it seems like, um, and sort of to be able to have that kind of time to reflect on what that looks like is just not there. Um, yeah, it's just really hard to think through right now.
1: hmm Natasha, so. what
3: about, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was sorry, I was gonna just say that I, at, at the same time, like media literacy has never been more important, has it? You know, we're thinking about um, whether it's, sci- I saw a great piece on Twitter the other day and it was just one image. And, you know, these charts that have uh, yes, no, and then you follow them down, you know, these kinds of infographics. But it was just one. And it said, are you a COVID-19 expert? And the answer (laughs) is no. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, you know, in some ways, of course, that's oversimplifying what's happening. But I don't think media literacy has ever been more important. I mean, you think about uh, I have a weird newfound respect for even mainstream, like my local paper, my regional paper, which I had always subscribed to. But for local and regional news, um, you know, you're really struggling to find good, reliable reporting, um, accurate reporting. So, um, yeah, at the same time, we're completely bombarded, but, you know, it's never been more important.
1: Yeah, it seems like even some of the details about sort of how viruses work are kind of a problem because a lot of the statistics we get are really dependent on how much testing has been done. So there's like this real ignorance about the extent of what's really going on.
4: Well, and I also think that there's also, frankly, an ignorance about where people live in the world, in this country alone, you know. Um, I read an interesting article about, you know, this town in the Dakotas that You know, they've been told to practice social distancing and they're like 100 miles apart. (laughs) And they're like, we live social distancing every day, you Mm -hmm. know? So the fact that, you know, if they go into town, maybe there might be five of them, maybe, you know, that's not something they're even considering because they've been living their lives exactly the way we're being asked to live it right now. Um, But I do think, you know, one of the things that concerns me and it's always concerned me is that the way the media has run with a lot of this. I still feel like it's so East Coast, West Coast that it's missing a greater part of the country. And so we're only seeing it from these very limited perspectives that have been highlighted and then blown up to be the actual end game message.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, if you see, um, you know, governors and mayors do press conferences daily, but if you look at the national news, the mayor of New, or the uh, uh, governor of New York is getting a, a national spotlight and national attention on what's going on, on that, you know, in one, one city, in one state every day.
4: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that, I think that's problematic because we're not, I mean, I live next to New York, so I know, you know, for me, I'm listening to that because it relates to me, but I don't know if it matters to you in Oklahoma, Ralph.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, I mean, what ends up being more of a concern and Adam, jump in on this, if you have anything to add, but the, the idea that there were so many people here who were sort of caught in the particular meme that this was all, hoax you know Mm. and so they thought that social distancing was some kind of horrible plot or something like that right Um, you know which was a it was a very strange frame to be in because you've got this competition between what we think of as expertise and then you know who actually is authorized to speak to large groups of people to sort of implement social change Um, you know it's a really bizarre situation
0: but that's
2: also uh, that's also an East Coast issue, right? Because the main person who's been dri- who was driving the hoax narrative uh, happened to live in the White House. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. There's that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I think that's that's what's interesting, though, is that that divide that we saw in terms of media consumption, and we'd all talked about, especially since the last election, the last presidential election, um, when media literacy really got sort of got a national spotlight um in some arenas for the first time but we see that same sort of divide and those same issues really popping up in a in a in a more I wouldn't say a more serious but a dangerous way right now i think where people are still in their filter bubbles and their the media yeah. they receive is is you know shifting one way or the other um to one particular side and, and that's, that's really dangerous
4: well, I think even what's even more dangerous is the fact that some of the people who aren't paying attention are people who are driving schools and administrators who are, you know, you know, passing down new guidelines and regulations for what online learning should look like. I'm, I'm more, I'm in the middle of watching practitioners who are scrambling because no one prepared them for even the idea of remote learning. And that to me is mind boggling because if you had been watching anything since December about this virus in China, every child has been online. So, how do we actually go from disbelieving that that would actually come here to all of a sudden, well, oh, it's real and now we're happening and now we're scrambling to understand how a one year, you know, how a, a first grader is going to actually process information through a computer?
3: It, it's, it's, it's like apples and oranges right now. It's just crazy.
1: So for think, the, oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, sorry, Ralph. I was just going to say, I, I wonder though, I hate to be the foreigner to bring up this idea, but um, like, I wonder how much American exceptionalism plays into this idea that, you know, that you can't really be touched, um, that this is not going to happen here, that this is something that's happening on the other side of the world. And it reminds me of sort of what, what happened after September 11th and that some of the disbelief around that, like a terrorist attack, um, which I wouldn't say was normal in other parts of the world, but it's certain, certainly certainly some, something that, uh, depending on where you were, was re- a regular occurrence, a more regular occurrence that you saw a lot of a lot of disbelief. And I think it is tied to that idea of American exceptionalism in some ways.
0: Well, to go along with that, you know, now we're seeing sort of the the othering othering of the Asian population. You know, with some of these sort of uh, White House press conferences, where you've seen um, comments about. Or, or you know uh, officials saying at least the president that this is the asian virus or something some reference to that um so if you think about you know we're not uh taking responsibility but putting that on on a whole different population
4: mm-hmm. right well i think that's actually a sort of acknowledgement of the fact that we're not a global society even though we claim to be um and certainly you know i've i've said this for years we're a huge country separated by two big oceans and people forget that other people live on the other side of those oceans, Um, never mind north and south of us, because we don't even want to even acknowledge that part of it. But I mean, the reality is, is that this is an issue that is missed because people are not watching global media as well. And we're certainly not receiving media in this country that has a global mark to it or global interest. Um, Maybe that's a switch now that we're seeing because, you know, we're seeing some you know, amazing videos of of Spain and Italy right now. And that's something that we're talking about, but we weren't before then. Leading into this, the only thing we've been talking about, frankly, are the the upcoming election and, you know, the debates, the ongoing debates that were going on that really, frankly, don't address the things that I think people are concerned with. So this is, it really is an implication more about the fact that we're not a society that is thinking globally or critically. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, even because uh, it seemed like there was the one place where that might, you know, have a connection where all the discussions involved in the election about healthcare, but, you know, what's happened with that discussion subsequently to I, I still find it incredibly confusing in terms of, you know, any honest information about, uh, you know, what the actual state of our healthcare system is between sort of the lack of testing and the problem with supplies and everything like that. Um, and it seems to be much more of an economic than a cultural football here. As opposed, you know, other places where they've hit their limits in terms of being able to support, you know, um, the, the, this, a lot of the stuff in Italy has been heartbreaking, in terms of you know they're they, they're at their capacity to respond, and I don't even get the sense that there are people involved in communicating about this in a public way here that quite comprehend that that's a real possibility here, and, you know that's where that's where the the curve is headed, right. So, you know, trying to think about that. So, I'm, so let me ask, what are, what are all of you doing to keep track of what's going on? I mean, how are you keeping yourself informed? What is it that you're looking at and how do you uh, either screen out or learn how to deal with, you know, whether you'd want to call it misinformation or persuasion or, you know, perhaps occasions when the media seems to be uh, overreacting or underreacting to what's going on? How are you all dealing with that?
3: I don't want to screen out the misinformation because I think um, I, I want to know what what's being put out there because I think that's what my some of my students are at least coming across. So I want to be in, in, informed about the misinformation um, for that reason. But um, I mean, I read a lot of international news anyway, uh, so out of Ireland and England. Um, and I think it's really hard to get in-depth reporting anyway through television in general. Um, I mean, it just goes against what television news is generally about, doesn't it? So I think you have to go to, you have to go to online um, newspapers, magazines.
1: Okay. Spencer, what are you, how are you approaching that?
0: Yeah. I like to get it all too, but um, I think what's difficult is um, leaving your emotions out of it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's, it's very easy to, uh, you know, as we know, to sort of have our own bias going, going into the information that we see. But um, I think it's important because you never know, like, where you're going to be or who you're going to be talking to, whether it's a, a faculty member, a colleague, a student, um, like Natasha said, who's going to have this sort of differing viewpoint, whether you know it or not. Um, and so kind of how well-rounded you're getting that, that information and who you're going to um, kind of come up against. Um, in these conversations that you may not realize, so I think definitely being being well rounded with with what's going on, whether you uh, disagree with it or not.
1: Yeah, I could think of nothing being like. I mean, this would be if I was a little kid right now. This would be terrifying. Mm. This is really like a fundamental cultural shift that is. I mean, for for all of us, it's very weird. So if you were. You know, a younger person who really, you know, doesn't have as much of a scope, this has got to look incredibly disruptive, not just because you're separated from your friends and you have to because, you know, they might have this illness, but, you know, it just disrupts your whole social environment.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's terrifying for adults. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just me. but yeah. I mean, <laughs> Go ahead. I think it's
0: important for us to acknowledge it, too, uh, yeah. in our roles, you
1: know. Yeah. Belina? Yeah.
4: No, I I was going to say I agree. I think there's a lot of anxiety all around. I've um, I've seen a tremendous amount of videos of little children crying because birthday parties have been canceled and um, they can't meet with friends and last night I remember there was a video that came through Twitter where this mom told her daughter she couldn't go out to, uh, to eat and so she they must eat a lot and they she literally was ticking off Nando's can't go and the girl starts to cry and then it's KFC and she's bawling and what about Burger King and the, the bawling increases like it's the number of places she's, and then the little girl turns around and says Chinese food and she goes no we can't go for Chinese food either and it was like hysterical sobs coming out of her and she's little, you know she's four she's like what what are we doing she goes you're have to rely on mom's cooking and then she just lost it (laughs) and I just you know the the commentary after that is like is it the takeout or is it mom's food but I think it's what you're saying like it's so not it's so hard for them to conceptualize what's happening and um, I do think for adults I've been talking to a lot of adults who are dealing with anxiety I've I've been teaching online for years now and um, I had just started Two weeks ago a grad class and the the second week we automatically end up in this so these are this is the first class in their master's program and this is what's happening and they're all teachers and so then on top of all of this then their work has been blown away and the emails that i'm getting about the anxiety level and the personal stress of being home when usually you can balance a little bit is because you're actually going to a job, but now you're home with your children or parents or <laughs> whatever else is in the room with you. That's a huge problem. Um, and as to your other question, I also wanted to just know. You know, I I'm, the, I'm also someone who listens to everything, the MSNBC, CNN, Fox, you name it, BBC America. Um, I get RTP from overseas and a whole bunch of other places. I also, I like to hear it all, but I also know that for me, i I've, I've started to see a sort of like a common piece going across and it's all negative pretty much <laughs> every day um, because it is negative. And so I'm starting to also sense that the way in which we're going to have to get through it, even as individuals is to not be also looking at it all the time. Um, And it's hard, it's certainly a hard thing as a media literacy person. I wanna be watching the news all the time but I'm being very selective again, um, just so that I can also retain some of that. And I will tell you, I used to use Twitter a lot as one of my um, places to get information but the things that I have seen on Twitter in the last two weeks have really turned me off to being there and um, it really speaks to the fact that Twitter has become a, a social, I don't know, I don't even know the word for it, disaster, (laughs) Um, with the number of things that I've seen actually being posted and said and repeated and total misinformation on so many different levels.
1: Yeah, it makes the two most dangerous words in the world show thread. Yeah. If you you don't click that button, you can save yourself from descending.
2: Yeah. Adam? Adam? I, so... I, one thing about me, I used to watch a lot of sports and I realized a few years ago that I couldn't watch it just for health reasons of like how it made me feel. You know, I stopped, I stopped watching a lot of it, uh, a lot of, you know, basketball's late night stuff here in Oklahoma. So, um, and I, I've, I, Ralph and I've had a lot of these conversations over the past few years. I mean, I felt myself. Uh, Socially distancing myself from Twitter for a a while now to the point where I don't go to my timeline. There are a few key profiles that I, I, how I follow news uh, is just through some, you know, I'll go to our student newspaper, I'll go to some specific reporters, you know, that I like to keep up with, or they, they, they filter news in a way that, you know, I appreciate Um, But I I really don't see myself going to them again. Uh, I don't see myself going to the timeline nearly as much as I used to. Um, Speaking to some other threads, you know, it's interesting to hear, um, you know, for for me, talking to both my own children as well as my college students, um, I've I've seen a lot of the opposite. In some ways, it feels like a minor inconvenience to them. Um, They're really sad they're not going to school, speaking for my daughters. Uh, but I, I really don't think that they have the ability to, you know, fully grasp it. They're six and eight years old. And then for my college students who I've been surveying, uh, this is our first week back in class uh, post spring break and and since we've gone to a remote, remote instruction. And the number one piece of feedback that I'm getting from them is their board, you know, and it's one thing that we've worked. I'm trying to think through from an academic standpoint, you know, we're going to have some students who um, due to the extra stress and anxiety of maybe losing their jobs or having to move all of a sudden or falling ill themselves, you know, are going to be having to think about uh, how do they withdraw from courses. And there's going to be other students who we're going to see the opposite happen where they're, you know, needing, wanting to pick up extra work somehow just to uh, just to put something in their brains that is not news, you know. And so for me, from a consumption standpoint, um, yeah, I've already seen myself with like, uh, Monday, I think, was the last time that I watched uh, a uh, a presidential press conference. You know, I've already decided that I'll just read uh, someone's article on it, but I'm not going to watch the. You know, I'm not going to. They're not the entertainment that I'm interested in watching myself, and so I've already withdrawn from a lot of the, the news there as well, uh, and just and taking an approach of I'm going to take it one step at a time. Uh, you know, but also try to do it in a way that doesn't it doesn't allow me to consume my emotions. And part of it might be because I'm still, um, you know, because of my role as also the director of the office of digital learning, I'm still managing a a crisis, you know, and and what I'm doing is having me having to focus all of my attention and emotions somewhere else and place them or sort of compartmentalize and put them aside, you know, uh, because, you know, we're undertaking a lot of incredible uh, emotional labor right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that with
1: students just in the interactions I've had with them is that there, there's this weird fluctuation. I said at one point, because <clears throat> I was asking them to do a piece of writing and post it online, and I want you to do it by Friday so it doesn't interfere with your weekend. And they said, why? What are we doing this weekend? And it was really kind of this, you know, funny admission that they really are, you know, it's, it's been so fundamentally disruptive. I had one student kind of sheepishly admit that she's not, she's being bad right? She's actually still doing some socializing, but the fact that she was reflecting, like she kind of sees it as being behaving badly is kind of an interesting way of thinking about what they're doing. I think there's probably a lot of complex emotional stuff that's going on. And, And again, even with us, even with how we're trying to manage it as adults and finding that kind of balance that a couple of you have talked about.
3: You know, it's, it's funny because I think, um, you know, going back to the, the media, Twitter has been a, an enormously helpful place for me over the last two weeks as I've been shifting, um, just in terms of talking with other digital educators and trying to push back against that narrative of, yes, we have six weeks left. Try to dump everything you were going to do uh, when we were face-to-face online. Um, you know, people who have no idea about online pedagogy at all, Um, just trying to quote unquote pivot. If I hear that word one more time too, I'm just going to like lose my rag, right? Pivot. Um, If you've ever played basketball, it takes about a second to pivot. Um, What we're doing is substantially um, more um, uh, labor, you know? Um, But yeah, I found Twitter to be very helpful. And then I, I also polled my students, surveyed my students, and I found that so many of them are really overwhelmed by not just what's happening, but also the idea of taking an online class. And I think perhaps it might be the difference in populations a little bit. Like, uh, you know, our population um, at the school that I work at, a lot of them have experienced the digital divide their whole lives. Um, and so they're not sure they can post something on Instagram, but they are not, they came to a small school to be face-to-face, to have those personal relationships. And now that they're all moving online, it's creating a, a, a lot of anxiety um, with them, mm-hmm. for them.
1: So is, is uh, how much are any of you seeing the, the way that the digital divide is being understood? Belina, you had said something earlier about misconceptions that some people have about that notion of the digital divide.
4: Right, well, I think, well, I see it as two different pieces, one is, um, obviously the technology piece there's an issue and I don't it's funny you think you live in the east coast everybody has it you're all wired up that's not true um in fact what we're even in a, in a state like Connecticut where you would tend to see more of that there are populations still that are not able to even get onto a hot spot so we have some issues going on and relatively more um problematic now because no one talked about it before, which I think is is just amazing to me. But I think the other problem with the digital divide is that there's this misconception about technology knowledge and what people are able to actually do. And I think that has become a major divide, bigger than even the fact that, you know, the access point is that we have Certainly, I'm as as Natasha was saying, she's dealing with people who students who have never used, been online. I'm dealing with less of that, but I'm also I'm dealing with a lot of teachers who have never been online and no, don't even understand the concept. And so pedagogically, there is no pedagogy. <laughs> Let's just I'm just going to say that there is none. Um, but I also think there's this belief that students know how to use technologies, and that's also problematic because schools at the K through 12 level in my area have been sending kids to chromebooks and that is not a pedagogically sound way of teaching about technology Um, it's just once again an access point and that's proved to be incredibly problematic when you see the kids as they leave high school to go to colleges and now being asked to be in programs at using programs like even the microsoft office suite or something more higher level like an adobe suite and they've never learned how to save a document because Google does it for you. They don't know how to create a folder. So, you know, this. And I've had students literally say, "I've had to take a 101 computer course to learn all the things that I thought I had learned when I was in high school." That's a digital divide. It's a master. It's a major one, um, and we don't address it, and we need to address it now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. There yes. are also there's. Oh, Spencer, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say um, a lot of the things, you know, that, that Belina said about questions students have around, you know, technology and, um, you know, submitting assignments and doing discussions in their LMS are a lot of things, a lot of questions that we get um, from students to help them navigate. Um, I'm getting a lot of emails from students who say, um, you know, my family doesn't have a lot of money. We don't have uh, a computer or internet at home. We can't go to any library. Um, what's, what's available to us? Um, a lot of people think that, um, you know, whatever LMS you're using is going to show up fine on a cell phone. You know, a student can, can, can do it on their cell phone. That's not always the case, of course. Um, so yeah, just sort of supporting sort of the, um, um, lack of understanding about kind of where students are are coming from no matter what their age is you know a lot of times it's like oh it's the older adult students well that's not true it's it's everybody from you know 17 18 to you know age 60 that you know populations that we serve that are having these problems that we're working with Mm
3: -hmm. the old digital native raises its ugly head again Eh.
0: oh yeah
1: oh oh that again (laughs)
3: <laughs>
1: well, that's
4: yeah. why I used to hate those terms native and immigrant like what do you think that means exactly yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all still walking into technology whether whatever age you are you're walking into it everyone is walking into it so it's 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 also about you know what we Think of as what we use as technology, and does that actually translate to a, a functional technology or a work technology or a business technology? Um, and just because you're a great Snapchatter doesn't mean that you know how to write a paper and <laughs> using you know the things that you need. So it's 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 a huge issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, the for for uh, all of us, part of the problem is also not just that sort of like how do you use a problem, but then trying to develop some kind of critical capacity inside of that to sort of understand, well, what is it that the, what the technology is sort of by its bias leading you to do that you need to think about a little more carefully, which is kind of what we were talking about when we were talking about Twitter and the way Twitter operates, which, you know, and I I think some of what's happening is because people who like to feed into the Twitter stream have a lot more time on their hands to Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, contribute to the general disuse of conversation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's a really great way of saying, "Oh, Ralph, you're a Twitter hater."
1: I know. I actually I because I have like no attention span, I kind of love Twitter and hate it all at the same time because <laughs> it's like, you know, it's 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 endlessly entertaining in all of its awfulness, you know.
4: Yeah. I mean, um, I have to say I love it. I just don't love it now. And I, I think um and it's a probably a temporary love-hate because this is what it is. I miss the Twitter that originated when we actually were really interested in dialogue and interested in sharing real information or learning about what was happening around the world. Whereas now, I mean, I will say this, I did learn that the UK was far behind in terms of shutting down things through Twitter, not so much from the mainstream media. The fact that teachers were teaching until last week, that was going on on Twitter, teachers were going crazy that stuff is happening. But I also feel like we are in the middle of just the most bizarre conversations that are being posted out there. And then a lot of angry, angry angry angry
3: people um who who are you following on twitter you got you got to get into my feed here i tell (laughs) you Uh, because you sound like you're one step away from like get off my lawn (laughs) um honestly like the support that i found on twitter in the last two weeks as i'm wrestling to think about meaningful assignments and meaningful projects for my students but not overwhelming them and thinking about the asynchronous versus synchronous debate and all of that stuff. And pass fail, hashtag pass fail nation <laughs> has been one that I've been tuning into quite a bit, um, as that's a debate in my own college at the moment, if we're gonna let students have the option to, to have a pass fail out of a class and would we change policies. I mean, all of those debates have been going on on Twitter. And for me, it's been um, just a source of support, encouragement. Um, so yeah, you just got to get on my feet.
0: Yeah, I found. I think that's,
2: that's, that's. Go ahead. Amy. Go ahead. I was I was gonna say I think that's one of the issues. I, I wish I could jump out of my algorithm and jump into somebody else's algorithm or jump into more private groups. And that's part of the issues that we've seen with Twitter over time is that sort of once your you know your feed is set based on an identity that maybe was created a decade ago, right? It's hard to jump jump into someone else's space uh, and see what see, see it from the lens that they get to as well.
1: Yeah, Spencer, you were going to say something?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I guess, and maybe I've been looking for it within Twitter, um, but there was um, a movement right away. Um, I don't know if you've, you you know the research group Ithaca SNR. I don't know what the SNR stands for, but they do a lot of uh, uh, reporting and surveying um, within higher education and in, in libraries. Um, but they started... Um, uh, collecting of libraries that were starting to change their hours or close as a part of all of this, because, um, you know, that those spaces and staff were worried that they were going to be, um, uh, you know, could be like an essential service and have to stay, stay open, um, um, during this time. And so I was worried, of course, of, of about my staff and what that was going to look like for us. Um, and so I went on there for, for support and, um, you know, as well, and how to sort of draft, a. a an email to my um, administration about, you know, the importance of our services, how uh, libraries are um, um, already in and operating online and can make, make that change uh, to support students and are ready and willing, um, and that, you know, we shouldn't be putting our staff in in danger um, at this time. So I found it very supportive it, it, from that angle.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think also sort of following from what both of you are saying that the a lot of the what I found on there was an amazing amount of support that appeared. People were very generous with the way that they were approaching solving problems because there were people with a lot of expertise. Like you, know, you have a lot of expertise for doing a lot of online teaching that really hasn't been part of my background, and mm-hmm. so I've been trying to take advantage of people who offer, you know, their own expertise. And and again, it's sort of like sharing syllabi on steroids you know it's sort of like here's a way of approaching what you're doing
4: yeah you know i'll tell you say this though it's funny i haven't been on facebook as much i actually had just stopped using it for a while and i went back to it about a week or so ago and i feel like that's where i'm getting more of the the um the community piece that I think Natasha has found through Twitter. I should jump on yours. (laughs) Um, But, you know, interestingly enough, my, my Facebook originated sort of in a mishmash, but then became really a place for a collective of people who were in media literacy or in communications or from conferences that I went through internationally because it is used so widely internationally. And I found that that's been really interesting for me that my timeline there is much more reasonable. Um, And, you know, and certainly it fits in with what our concerns are and the things that we talk about. Found some really interesting resources as well. talked to people that I haven't talked to in quite a while by going back in that area. So, I mean, the thing, I guess it is true. It has a lot to do with the algorithm, Adam, and you're so right about that. I think depending on what you liked or um, have followed or whatever it may be. And I I think my timeline is also flooded a lot with um, Twitter suggestions which I really dislike. I, that's one of the things about Twitter that really annoys me, that they've decided to suggest to me maybe possible people that I should follow based on something that I followed previously. Well, I don't want the suggestion. I can find what I want, um, and I don't want to see their commentary. So it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think I haven't really gone back to get rid of people in a long time and i think i'm at a point where i need to do that because you accumulate so many right and then you get all of their retweets and everything so even now your whole sense of the chronology of it's destroyed
3: <laughs> yeah so see that's kind of that, that's why i hate netflix so much because if you live with somebody who, this is completely off topic, but also very annoying at this time, if you live with somebody whose algorithm has dictated the Netflix, which is the case in my household, I'm not going <laughs> to mention any names, then I never get to see the stuff I want to, right? And it's like, I know you can create the other profile and whatever. I don't have time to do that. But it's yeah, annoying. Yeah. Like, we're well, trying to pick something. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I highly recommend
3: it to create the other profile. Maybe I will. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I actually had one of my classes online suggested, hey, could you create, because we're using Canvas for our um, LMS, uh, could you create a place where we could just talk about what we're watching? And I thought that was because, you know, again, they're home and they're watching this stuff. And this was in a documentary class. And they were also saying, could you suggest some stuff for us to watch? Some of the process of putting a list together of that are outside of what we need to do for class, but just other things that would kind of, you know, fill in the gaps because, you know, part of it is that we're all, of course, overwhelmed by the amount of material we have access to. And it's like, you know, how do you decide what the priorities are? So, but I think that there, I think there's a little desperation that I'm seeing among my students to kind of maintain, you know, kind of a coherent set of social relationships to to talk about this stuff too. So, um, so we're, we should be probably winding up what we're talking uh, about here. Um, I'm curious from all of you. One of the one of the questions that I'd sent you previously was, you know, if you wanted to suggest something to someone who suddenly finds that they are now homeschooling their kids, um, and that wasn't what they had intended on doing, but here they are doing it. Uh, what would, as a, as a collection of really highly intelligent experts at media literacy, information literacy, and learning technology. What would you suggest that's really accessible for people like that to help them with their uh, homeschooling experience in terms of how they're dealing with media?
4: Well, I would say the News Literacy Project people, they have a lot of great resources. I would definitely recommend them. Um, I'm not really as keen about the checkology as I think a lot of people are. I just find that it's a very limiting way to really teach people to be critical. It's just a surface level check, but I think the resources that they provide, they have a, a weekly email that they send out. Um, and I think that would be incredibly useful for teachers who want to actually then share more information and they do a great job with misinformation and, 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 and taking things apart. Um, Project Luke Sharp has a number of great resources that I would highly recommend as well. And they have been working at that for years. So their stuff is top notch as far as I'm concerned. Um, I would also think that, um, frankly, I would step out of us and go to the Media Awareness Network in Canada. I think their materials are phenomenal. And I think one of the things that we need to definitely incorporate into this is this whole idea of digital citizenship, which I don't let me just preface this and say, I know a lot of people don't love the way all of that transpires, but we do need to talk about screen time. We definitely need to have some understanding of balance. And I think when we're talking about little kids from K through three and four through six, um, six through eight, all of that, we definitely need to have more of a dialogue about what that means. And so um, I, I think the Media Awareness Network has done a really nice job with actually putting that together in a, in a really
3: good way.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: Do you remember um, about three or four weeks ago when um, most parents in America thought the screen was the devil? Remember? Like that was the, that, that was the typical narrative, right? Yeah. That, that the screens are killing our children. They're ruining, they're making them depressed and they're ruining social interaction as we know it. And three weeks later, here we are and it's the, the savior of all, of everything. I would say calm down. Parents and teachers, do not put your kids in front of the screen and make them watch Zoom lessons one after another after another. Yeah. Like Just like, figure out some ways um, that they can be creative and, and make stuff, um, even if it's just like little presentations on what they watched. I'm, I'm incorporating Screencastify into a lot of my classes, and um, even, even though the free version is only you can only make a video for five minutes, make something. So that the, so that you can see that you can't nobody can sit and absorb that kinds of material for that many hours a day. So um, I would say get a little bit of yourself back about the screens from three weeks ago. Rescue that narrative a little bit and apply it right now.
1: Yeah, that raises also that other issue about uh, you know we were all thinking before this new situation that we're in about sort of the negative social implications of cell phones, right? Um, and what, what effect they were having on on young people. And if that had to do with, you know, sort of like the relationship between media and social isolation, guess what just got to be a lot weirder of a problem, you know. Sure. You know? Spencer, anything, any thoughts you'd want to
0: add? This one's an easy, for, easy one for me. You have information literacy experts across the country at your libraries, uh, chat, email, Zoom, phone calls, um, very accessible, I think uh, that's a great way to start.
1: Well, what if you had a really bad librarian, though? What would you do then?
0: Ah, uh, geez, that's a tough one.
3: <laughs> call, call Spencer. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know though, make, the funny
4: thing is, there's sure a lot it, of libraries online right now, so you could just move to the next library. That's true. <laughs> true. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I do. I do. One other thing I wanted to mention is, I do think that you know, as so many more and more and more people are are using Zoom, I think, and I'm seeing this a little bit. I think. Um, just as people do with Twitters, we have to sort of start uh, maybe critiquing what information that Zoom is uh, um, tracking on us or uh, I just saw giving to Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we need to recognize that more and more as we're all using that more and more.
2: Mm -hmm. Adam, anything you'd like to add? No, Spencer covered it for me. I mean, I've been so impressed by what librarians are posting, uh, what information people are making available right now everything from virtual tours to museums you know I mean a lot of what we we're getting right now is being filtered through our school's librarian who's been kind enough to continue to gather resources from uh their personal uh uh, learning network and then be able to share that out with parents as well um I you know I keep thinking about what would this be like if this happened a decade ago you know and and so much has you know so many different technologies have become available and and it's not uh it's not uh ubiquitous but it is you know to a sense of of we are able to uh replicate some level of normalcy and why i i try to shy away from calling even what i'm doing online learning and really kind of stay with remote instruction you know or, or crisis management is because i i don't i i as someone who thinks a lot about online learning has been playing in the space i know what we're doing is not uh, Great online learning, but you know, in, in some sense, what I'm trying to do more than anything else is just try to maintain some sense of normalcy for my students, you know, which looks different than good online learning. Uh, in some ways, I, I'm literally trying to replicate things I do in the classroom, not because it's most appropriate, but because I think that they it it, it gives a little sense of calming calmingness. Whether so it's just like changing a virtual background to a picture of my classroom or silly stuff like that, you know, that just gives cues uh, of um, uh, you know, we're we're you know this this hasn't changed completely. So those are those are some things that I I've been thinking about. It's just how do you how do you maintain normalcy during this, or even a sliver of it? I think can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and hopefully at some point we'll be able to kind of think about what did we learn from this whole transition in terms of maybe some things we could do differently and better with some combination of you know online technologies and face to face. I'm I'm seriously hoping that we don't for one moment lose all the value that comes from the face to face things that happen in classrooms everywhere. But, you know, there may be some things that come out of this where people who otherwise might not have had any experience doing online instruction, see some of the advantages of it and can kind of work those in together.
2: i sure I'm going to have a lot of people who are really enjoying working from home. I can say that. (laughs) I think the (laughs) people are are interested in the, the remote work part of this for sure.
1: Yeah, well, I think that um, my lovely wife referred to this as the golden dog years because <laughs> all of our, all of our pets are totally spoiled with our constant presence. Right now. So. Awesome. Well, well, thank you very much for participating in this conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll touch base again at some point on the other side of this and see where it left us after. You'll notice, by the way, I think you should all thank me for not asking you what's going to happen in the future. Because um, I thought about that, and I thought, that's got to be like the worst question in the world. I love be... it.
3: Yeah. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> no, because then we'll be back to the Statue of Liberty sticking up out of the sand.
3: Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Thanks, Ralph.
1: Yeah,
2: thanks, thanks, for Adam. thanks, Adam.
3: Thank you,
1: Adam. And you've been listening to Media and the End of the World. Thanks for listening.